Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland and today I'm joined by Dr Gemma Morgan, Senior Lecturer in Criminology, Social Policy and Sociology here at Swansea. Gemma's research explores reducing reoffending or preventing offending in the criminal justice system by developing and using digital technology to support people. Her research has led to the development of the My Journey app. It allows people on probation and those leaving prison to assess their own well-being, keep on top of appointments and track their progress with the ultimate aim of supporting them to stop offending. Gemma, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It sounds like a very interesting topic. Looking forward to hearing all about it. But just before we get into the, the detail, can you just kind of in a nutshell, tell us about your research and your key findings? Yeah, so core to my research really is looking at ways that I can support uh, practitioners and criminal justice and social justice organisations to better help the people they are supporting. So the ultimate goal of the project is, on my research, is looking at ways that we can harness digital technologies in different forms to provide people with better face-to-face support, meet their needs more effectively. So hopefully they don't go back into the criminal justice system and we can help to stop them from offending, but also integrate them more successfully back into society. And obviously the idea of people committing crimes or re-offending is, is a problem for society. And I know this sounds like a very simple problem, but from your perspective, why, why is that a problem in the first place? There's lots of different reasons. Um, if we look at the criminal justice system within England and Wales, there's massive problems with them. And this is nothing new. We've we've had a, a penal crisis for decades. It's not really a crisis because that's something that's temporary. It's <laughs> continuous. So when you look, we've got some of the highest prison populations per 100,000 capita in, in the Western world. Our re-offending rates are significantly high, around about between 40 and 60% roughly of people will go on to um, re-offend after going into prison. So obviously things are not working. Um, and based on my research, I went in and conducted evaluations in uh, statutory services, private and third sector. So I was looking at how are organisations implementing evidence-based practices, so things that are shown to reduce re-offending. Um, and I found there was some really great practice out there but practitioners themselves were having difficulties with implementing evidence-based practices and some of that was due to kind of processes and systems that they were using. And then people themselves on probation or coming out of prison had difficulties themselves. So some of them live chaotic lifestyles, some of them may be drug users. So keeping a track on appointments and knowing where they needed to be was a problem. Not trusting the people that they were working with, not knowing what support was out there. So there's lots, lots of different factors why people offend or go on to re-offend. Mm. Some of that stuff can be, uh, you know, down to the, the individual themselves. It can be environmental and it could be societal factors as well. Yeah. So it's a really complex issue and trying to find like the one cause is pretty much impossible. There's, there's a number of different factors that feed into it. Sure. And I guess at the end of the day, you want people offending less, you want people committing less crime. And like you say, reoffending is such a problem, particularly in this country, isn't it? That if there's less of it, it's better for society as a whole. I got really interested in reoffending a, a while ago, actually, because I went to a I went to an organisation which uh, encouraged prisoners to gain uh, skills, basically working in a restaurant. And there was a restaurant in a prison. And the reoffending rates of people who'd done, who'd taken part in that scheme were at, so dramatically much lower than they were for people who 
didn't participate in similar sorts of schemes. So there's a rehabilitation element here as well to all of this, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of research has shown that when you, uh, you know, try to properly reintegrate people by giving them skills and opportunities, you're far more likely than to reduce the the risk or chance that they'll go on to um, reoffend. So again, if we can look to get people, um, you know, in training or education, they're filling their time with something that's proactive rather than associated with perhaps negative peer groups um, where they are then more inclined to commit a crime or, or go fall back into that type of lifestyle. The difficulty you have there is obviously, you know, the world that we're living in now, the cost of living, uh, the energy crisis, a lack of opportunity for people. So while it's great to say, yes, we'll put you through training and we'll give you the support, it's quite difficult then to follow that through in the world in the way that it is currently. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine. Um, now, I did a bit of research you know, on, on you and your work beforehand and, and this uh, there was a line that really struck me where you talked about positive outcomes for people in the criminal justice system. I suppose, playing devil's advocate for a second, there would be someone who who would read a sentence like that and say, well, as part of the social contract, if someone's committed a crime, for example, then actually the whole point of going to prison and all that kind of stuff, there's a punishment element here. And talking about you know their needs and focusing on, on, on them instead of perhaps victims might come across as the wrong way around for some people. So how would you address a critique like that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the issues when we look at the criminal justice system and what it's purposes is very divisive and it's very emotive and yes absolutely things that where people have committed crimes there are victims and we need we need to address also the needs of the victims but if you think about society and you know a good society surely we should be focusing on making improvements giving people a chance so they can actually become you know active citizens that so they can contribute back to society and in, in that sense um you know, make up for the wrongdoings that they have committed against the victims. So I think it's far more productive to focus on how do we bring people back in to society so they are actually contributing. Mm. And again, we're reducing, sorry, the risk of them going on to offend again yeah. and causing more harm. I know this isn't specifically what your your research focuses on, but you are, you know, I know you, you lecture in criminology and sociology and things like that. Do you think on the whole the penal system in this country works or are there elements of it that could be better in terms of, for example, rehabilitation um, or even, you know, the, 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 the balance? And again, that sort of idea of the social contract that prison plays a part of. Yeah, it, it's a really difficult one because, again, historically, Criminal justice policy has been very divisive, particularly when it comes to general elections. It's often swung a vote. Prison works and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yep. exactly. And again, when we're looking at working with people, all of the research will show you that working in a way which is human-centred, that is looking to address the, th the factors in someone's life that have led them to offending. So whether that is um, drug addiction, whether it is a lack of housing, a lack of training, a lack of op opportunity... If we focus on getting those things right in that person's life, looking at the strengths that we can build on with that person and work with them, you're far more likely to reduce reoffending than just throwing somebody in prison and locking up the key and saying, this is your just desserts, basically. Mm. Um, but trying to communicate that to a public audience is difficult because obviously people do feel vindicted or wronged by people who have committed offence. And that is completely understandable. As I said, there is a motive but as a society, we need to be focusing on actually how, again, do we bring people back into society in meaningful ways. Mm. 
I suppose you could sell it also as a cost-cutting exercise yeah. in the long term too, because if, if in the long run you have less prisoners, it's less money being spent on the prison system. Yeah, and the price of prison fluctuates per year per person. You're talking probably close to £50,000. Wow. Um, um, you know, we've got a population of just over 80,000 people currently. Predictions are that's going to rise to around about 100,000 in the next 10 years. It's a lot of money that we're paying to put people in prison, particularly on short-term sentences where you haven't got that, that time to work with them or support them. And again, there's some great projects that do go on in prisons to rehabilitate and support people. But we can question, you know, is that money better spent supporting people in the community where, again, the evidence does show if you work with people in the community in a, a people-centred way, you're far more likely to support them and then they won't go on to uh, re-offend. On a personal, I guess a professional level, why did you choose to focus on this area? I think initially was curiosity. Um, I come from quite a socially deprived area in the Welsh Valleys. So I've kind of seen what crime can do to people, to individuals, to families, to the community. So it was an understanding of wanting to know why do people commit crimes? What are the factors that lead them into that route? And then trying to work out, well, how can I make this better? So I was trying to look at ways of, and I think it's, again, it's core to my research, how do we transfer the academic knowledge of we know of things that work to prevent reoffending, and to support people and actually transfer that more effectively into day-to-day -day practices and policy. And kind of that's where the focus came from and kind of the spark for the My Journey app as well. And I'll come onto the app in, in just a second. I'm, I'm, I'm still intrigued in some ways about your your background uh, and all that kind of stuff as well. I mean, you say that was an influence to some extent. I mean, did you, did, would you say you even knew people perhaps who who had been through the criminal justice system and you felt like it wasn't, I don't know, treating them or hadn't worked particularly well for them? Yeah, definitely. There were people I knew who'd, who'd been in, in prison or had been kind of in conflict with the law. Um, and, you know, you see it a lot anyway on the media of, of high profile cases mm -hmm. or things that are happening in the community. And again, when you look at kind of the statistics it is mainly the work, working class people who are, are in the criminal justice system and again it's looking more broadly at kind of the structural issues that again are an influence in perhaps people's decision making or kind of drive people more into the root of crime and again it's not making excuses it's just looking at the the realities of you know if you come from somewhere where again there's a lack of job opportunities or education then those are protective factors. So if people haven't got those opportunities, then they might look, you know, to other routes you know, to make a living or to get by and survive sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And you, you've you been at Swansea for a while, haven't you, working in this in, in this area? So what's your, what's your academic journey been? I've been in Swansea since my undergrad, actually. So nice. probably close to 10 years or over 10 years. So I did my degree in criminology and criminal... Uh, justice. So I graduated in 2013. Then I was successful in getting uh, an ESRC um, PhD studentship to look at how, again, we transfer um, academic knowledge into practice with, through evaluation work and, and looking at good practices throughout Wales. Then I started as a tutor in criminology 2015 whilst I was doing my the PhD full-time then, which was a bit of a challenge, but I got through it. <laughs> I was appointed a lecturer in 2016, completed my PhD in 
2020 and then was promoted the following year. Wonderful. As academic careers go, that's quite a meteoric rise. Yeah, it's been, it has been fairly quick. <laughs> and in terms of, obviously, there's there's a good team here working at Swansea that you've kind of integrated into, I assume. Yeah, I've been very fortunate um, throughout my time as a student and a member of staff. I've had incredible mentors, um, research and teaching, and I think that's really kind of shaped my approach to research and, and you know, how I conduct myself professionally. So I've been very, very lucky in that sense, I would say. In what kind of way exactly do you mean in terms of how one has influenced the other? I think I've been around uh, people. So my, my PhD uh, supervisors, Professor Peter Rayner and uh, Dr. Pamela Radiki, they really lead us in this area of um, evidence-based practices and offender rehabilitation. So I've been really lucky to learn from them you know, research-wise and be mentored by them and they've given me lots of opportunities. And also I've worked very closely with Professor Tracy Sagar and um, Professor Debbie Jones. They're really innovative in the type of research that they do and, and will push boundaries. And also my wife as well. So she's a lecturer, and well, just been promoted today actually, a associate professor. Oh, wow. And again, incredibly supported on my work. Her research is amazing. Um and again, she's really innovative. So to be around all of these people is creating a really good culture of research and, and inquiry, I think. Well, on that note, tell me about the My Journey app. So my journey came really from um, my PhD research initially. So as I said, I'd gone into um, youth offending services, third sector services, and I conducted a number of um, evaluations to look at what were they doing well, what was good in practice, and perhaps what needed to be improved. So while I was out in the field, I, you know, I, as I said, I noticed a few things. So from like an organisational perspective or practitioner perspective, um, like the IT systems that they were using were really clunky, really difficult to upload information on to get information quickly. So, for example, if I wanted to go in and know how many of the people they were supervising were high risk of reoffending, I couldn't get that information easily, which is really important when you're looking at resource allocation and prioritising cases. And again, from the people that they were working with as well, they weren't aware of what services were available to them. They found it difficult to keep track of appointments. And again, if you don't turn up, if you're on probation, you'd get breached and you're back into court. There's that revolving door syndrome of people in and out when they actually haven't committed a crime, they've just breached an order. So... Well, I wanted to look at, you know, is there anything else, any other systems or technology that was out there that perhaps we could look for some of these organisations I was working with to use? And there wasn't. We also had COVID then, so a lot, if not most, of the services that people were receiving on a, you know, a face-to-face basis closed down or they reduced. And that really drew attention for the need of organisations, even more so, to use digital technology more effectively to support people face-to-face, but also online when you know they, they physically couldn't be there to support people. So I'd looked, I did a scope and exercise, I looked at the literature, I looked at the market, and there wasn't anything out there that was really evidence-based that drew on the academic literature, and that was generally made with people in the system that were going to use it. So I'd worked with this, an organisation called um, Include UK for probably 10 years now as well, Amazing organisation, the third sector. Um, they work throughout Wales, but they've got a community hub just off the Walters Road in Swansea. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a little cafe that people can just 
And anybody can use it. it. can pop in to have a cup of tea, something to eat, and they'll help anybody with anything that they need. So it could be housing applications, benefits, looking for employment, pretty much everything. So I said to them, look, I'm thinking about developing an app to fill a gap. Some of the things I've identified, some of the problems I know that you face as well. Do you want to do this project? Should we go for it? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Sounds amazing. So I got in touch with the Legal Innovation Lab Wales, pitched the idea to them when they were on board. And that, that's where we started. So again, we looked at what was missing, what would be useful. We started, well, not me personally, but we've got a team of amazing software developers. They started building the app and it's been something that is organically grown. It's been something that um, includes members, the people who they support fed into the staff. So we're now at a point where we've got an app that can be used for the members coming in so they can uh, input in appointments, they know where they're going mm-hmm. and what it's for and they get reminders about that so hopefully they don't miss them. They've got journaling features so they can reflect on their day um, and again that can be really useful for somebody who can be quite cathartic. They can use it to communicate with staff to say if they need help with something and they get the option of who they share that with. So we're trying to give them a bit more agency and voice in you know, their journey to desistance. And one of the other key features is a well-being assessment. So every day they log in and it's just simple, how are you feeling today? And they would rate on a scale of kind of one to ten how something is. So it includes non-criminogenic risk factors and criminogenic risk factors. And that's quite unique because when people are on probation or come into the criminal justice system, these risk need assessments are always done to them. They don't always really get a say in what things they feel are affecting them and what help they need. With. So now we're trying to kind of flip that on its head. They say, oh, actually, housing is a problem for me or I'm my mental health is a problem. So staff can get to see that information. They can engage with that person and offer them tailored support, which will, again, hopefully address their needs and reduce the likelihood that they will go on to reoffend. OK, so let's just say I'm I'm an offender. Obviously, I'm not. Although I was once, <laughs> I was once accused of being a young offender because I was out volunteering, picking up litter, and someone in my village where I was doing it said, "We don't want any young offenders in this village." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, inaccurate, but also just oh, shame. Um, I, I'm I'm an offender, and I'm and I'm going to start using this app now. Just practically, can I have it on my phone or is it on my computer? Uh, wh- what does it look like? What do I do with it? It's um, a web-based app. Mm. Um, we went for web-based for a key reason. So we've done some uh, previous research with Include members and we've done some more research recently with a larger group. Um, what we are finding is, uh, particularly people who are involved in the criminal justice system or at risk of going into, they're very much digitally excluded. So not all of them have smartphones, which f- for the general population is, is pretty much a given that we do have a smartphone. Not all of them will have a computer or a laptop, not necessarily, or have access to one at home or even have broadband at home. So again, being able to afford data can be an issue for this group. Um, And a lot of them don't necessarily feel confident as well using this type of technology. So we went for a web-based app. On a phone, it functions as an app. It looks Mm. like an app that you would download from an app store. Again, really accessible, easy to use for those who do have smartphones and feel confident in using it. But again, we didn't want to exclude probably quite a large number of people in the criminal justice system, so it's web-based as well. So again, people who might be accessing support from Include UK, they've got computers, so they can come in 
and use the the app on there or on their tablets or they could go to public spaces like libraries to use it. Mm. But it's definitely an issue that we have encountered for the project as well. And I would say um, we're onboarding um, a group of men coming out of uh, Swansea Prison at the moment. And I would say 90% of those men don't have an email address. Mm. Um, and again, which is something pretty much everybody in the general population would have. But when we're working with the men, a lot of them don't, again, feel confident in, you know, pretty much doing anything online. And when men come out of prison, you know, applying for housing, for benefits, online banking, it's all done online. So again, we're seeing this massive barrier for people, which has really received little to no research over the last decade. And I think it's a really big factor for people now coming out that they're not confident, you know, living in the digital world or accessing support in the digital world, that is potentially going to be a factor that might lead them back into crime then. Proportionally, and obviously you won't be able to have an exact figure on this, but how many people just don't want to engage with it full stop? With the the members who have been involved, it's been very positive. And again, we were quite surprised by that because introducing something new, particularly something that's digital, if, if people are not confident, you know, might be daunting to them or they might be, oh, actually, this isn't for me. But we've had really good uptake within the Include Hub. We're starting to sign all of their members up to use it now when people are engaging with the app, which has been incredible. On the other project that we're running, uh, looking at using the app with men, you know, coming out of prison in the immediate, pretty much everybody who's been able to uh, sign up for the app has signed up for it. Mm. And we're actually having people, other people asking, can I use it? Can I use it? So the pilot itself is running in the Swansea area at the moment because that's kind of the geographical location where Include provides support. But we're having men out of the area saying, oh, I'd really, really like to use your app. Mm. So for us, that's incredible that we've we've really have had a positive kind of feedback from the potential users. Is it all male users? Obviously, you've talked about men, and I know that there are many more men in prison than there are women, but are you specifically doing this just with, with men at the moment? We're running it with both. So we're running two separate projects. One is um, with the Ministry of Justice um, through the Prison Leavers Innovation Challenge, and that's specifically piloting the app with men coming out of HMP Swansea and HMP Park who are being resettled into the Swansea area. So that's one project. And then we're running another project with Include UK because obviously they've they've co-produced the app and they are going to be using that app to replace existing systems within their organisation. So Include support um, women and men. So within their organisation, we're using it with both men and women. Okay, great. So just to summarise then, this is, this is something to track people's well-being and to try and sort of get some sense of how they're doing and perhaps if they if, if there are strategies to get get them feeling better or whatever it's also a practical thing for things like appointments um what 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 else we've got in there as well um a directory of support and mm-hmm. we created this as a standalone feature as well because again we were finding that people coming out of prison didn't really know where they could access all different types of support and again it can be really daunting particularly if you don't feel confident, again, using a phone or using the internet to find information or, or speaking to people. So within the app, they can they log in, they go to my directory and they can search. So they can put in a postcode, they can put in um, a mile radius, a two mile radius, and they can look for s- specific type of support. So again, if they wanted uh, information on housing, 
um, mental health services, it would show them, okay, within a mile radius, these are the organisations you could contact. So if they wanted to, they could contact it themselves or they could ask their support worker and include to make that contact and referral to them. What we also found with kind of this group of people is whilst they might have a phone coming out of prison, because when you're discharged from prison, you're released for £76 until your benefits come through, if you're applying for benefits or if, obviously if you get a job. Um, sometimes people will sell their phones or they'll trade them for other things. So if they've got their probation's contact, probation officer's contact number or any support workers on that phone and they sell it, they've lost that. So on there as well, they can also house all of their contacts. So again, if they did lose a phone, they're not going to lose all of that information. So they're not going to lose their appointments, all the support services, their contact. It's all in one place there for them. Great. I know you said you didn't design it yourself, um, which is a shame because I was going to ask, as, as the least techie person in the world, <laughs> I was going to ask how, how you're des- you designing that. But um, who was it who developed it in particular? The software developers in the Legal Innovation Lab will. So initially, Phil Reynolds was the lead software mm-hmm. developer. He did the um, initial build of the app and then he, he left, he moved on. And uh, Tobias Hardwick now is our lead software developer, who's incredible as well. So he's made the adaptions to the app that we've done and has just been growing it for us. And what do you make of the interface and the design? The interface and design was, was key for us. Um, again, when you look at kind of statistics people in prison or people on probation their literacy levels tend to be a lot lower than the general population so we needed something that was really visual and easy to use that was key for us because again if something was complicated or clunky people are just going to disengage so when you look at the app there is there's kind of nine squares visual representation so there's a little diary to indicate this is the diary feature Mm -hmm. Um, a heart for the well-being. So again, when you look at it, you should be able to click, go in and do a one um, one thing. So it does one thing well. And again, with the feedback that we've had from the men, they really like that aspect of it, that it is easy to use, it's accessible and there's nothing difficult. They don't get lost in a million different tabs or a million different pages within the app. Is there anything you like about it particularly or are particularly proud of in terms of it being innovative or, or different or effective in terms of the, the user face? I think I'm really proud that we all came together with our different expertise from, you know, the lab, myself being an academic, I include UK staff and members being the people who were, you know, they, they live the criminal justice system, that we brought our expertise together. We've put something out there that nobody else was really doing and we really grafted actually to get it off off the ground to find funding for this type of work, which is always a challenge. And we've we've really now started to make this a success where something that started off as a, a spark has now really come to life and is in use and is actually helping people, you know, in the real world and hopefully making that change. So I'd say that is probably the proudest part that we've we've seen it through and it is impacting people in the real world. This is gonna sound trivial. But it, but it isn't meant to be. Is there some sort of feature on the app? This is how I'm kind of visual, visualising it. I have, I've, I've seen it. So uh, I don't think I saw this particular thing on it. But just out of interest, is there like a, a feature that tells them how long they've been out of prison for and haven't, you know, almost like a, you know, 45 days and no re-offence kind of thing? 
we've kind of got gamification features in there, like a Fitbit yeah. that will tell them how active they've been. Yeah. So we will say like from the inception, which would be, you know, the day that they release it, you know, they've signed in X amount of times, they've done their well-being assessments and they rack up kind of medals and goals. What we're trying to do, and this is further down the line, is link that with more tangible things. So we would really love to link in with uh, companies and businesses so we could provide actual rewards. Them. So even if it was something like um, a cup of coffee, um, you know, for a month or a week of, you know, being out, being active and engaging. Yeah, yeah. And I guess like psychologically, there's quite a lot in there, isn't there? Of getting, it's a bit like people try to get their step counts every day. But people really like it because it's just an easy simple goal but it's a goal nonetheless yeah and it's those nudges for people as well and yeah. for some people that'll be something that they will absolutely engage in, and others not so much and I think that's the good thing about the app as well there's lots of different aspects in there which are useful and you don't have to use them all so you you know you don't have to use the diary feature and some people will really love that but then you could really love the well-being assessment and use that regularly. So again, people get to choose what they use and what they use it for. And I think, again, that's really important to give people a choice rather than it be forced on them. I have to admit, I'm a little bit sceptical about just technology. And sometimes I just don't, I leave my phone somewhere because I quite like not having it because I feel like almost like I'm being tracked or or watched. But in in the case of, of the people you're working with, in some ways they are being tracked and their data is being tracked or whatever. Do you ever get people being reluctant to use it on on that basis yeah definitely and that was i think not just not our app just technology in general so quite a few of the the men that include support and the men that we spoke to in the criminal justice system they're really suspicious um of government tracking them of police tracking them which you could understand i, I guess so they've been they've been locked up for <laughs> x number of years or yeah a lot of them have burner phones, so a lot of them won't have a smartphone purely on the basis that they think they are going to be um, constantly monitored. So that was a really key thing that played into the design of the app as well, that they get to share what information they share with the people supporting them. So, for example, in the diary feature, they could submit something and then they choose who sees it. So it could be something just for themselves that is reflective or they could say, oh, actually, I only want Gemma to see this bit of information about me. Mm-hmm. Or they could say, oh, actually, everybody who was supporting me, who has access to the app, I would want to share this with them. And they can edit that permission and change it. And again, I think it's really important to give people a bit more agency, a bit more control about what is done to them. It should be what's done with them and what they are sharing, because ultimately that's going to build that trust and engagement, which is really, really key when you are working with people. Working with people. So I work with people in my in my own research and I know how difficult GDPR can be when trying to speak to people or get people's consent to do things or to, to basically collect their personal data. Is this posing a problem for you as well? Yes or no. It was, again, one of the key considerations for us that making sure that we were storing data and processing data in line with GDPR. So... Over the course of this project, I've learned a lot about GDPR, a lot around IP, a lot around contracts. So again, it was really useful for us to tap into the legal support within the university. And they've been amazing again with making sure that we've we've got the right privacy policies in place. Uh, we've got, you know, really solid terms of use for the app and cookie policies, etc. So we're confident that, again, everything is 
is done in line with GDPR and is and we're processing information correctly. Dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Yes, definitely. Have you ever had kind of feedback sessions from people who've used this app, sort of almost, uh, you know, focus groups or whatever, got people together and asked them for, uh, yeah, just positives and negatives of using it or what their overall experience was? Yeah, and that has been part of the whole design process. Mm. So, again, I don't think any technology, particularly this type of technology and the people who are using it, would ever work if, you know, I had gone off and just instructed a software company to develop it or, you know, a software company just said, oh, we're going to try and tap into this market. The people using it have been key to the design. So, again, we've done constant, like, UX testing, constant feedback from people where we've then iterated the app, made changes based on what people have told us. Um, and it could be really simple things from perhaps changing the language in there. So in the well-being assessment, there's language associated with how you would rate, how you're feeling. So we'd originally taken this off uh, like a gov uh, poll, but it, it didn't work. So like abysmal, for example, people didn't like that. So we, we changed it to something that was, again, more accessible for the people using it. And that constant feedback and changing has been really important to get in the app to, to where it is now. And I guess... Coming back just for a second to what I started with in some ways, has it changed your view on the whole issue of reoffending and offenders and the kind of resources that are put into certain certain areas? I mean, I, I'm just I'm hearing again. I'm just I guess I'm hearing in my head people who might listen to you and might say, "Well, where's all this support for for victims?" And I know there will be some, there will be support for victims, but there might be people who will see this and only see this and think, "I mean, is this the best use of the money?" I suppose. Yeah, and again. People do have very differing views on, you know, what you what you should do with people, you know, people who have offended. Um, and I think resources are just strapped for, you know, generally across the public sector, across the third sector. But when you look at the cost of reoffending, and you know, not you know, perhaps not doing anything on what it actually costs, we're talking around about eighteen billion pound a year. So. I would suggest if we do perhaps invest in support services for people coming out of prison or people who are on probation, to stop them from then going on to offend, that is money well spent rather than having these people in and out, in and out of the system, literally costing billions and billions of pounds. The revolving door. Yeah. Now, you're going to be or are a Fulbright Scholar, is that correct? 23, 24, did I read that? Yeah, I found out last week, so that was a oh, nice well. surprise. Congratulations, Thank news half the press. For people who don't know, tell us what that involves. Fulbright is probably one of the most prestigious scholarships that you can have, and it's all about um, knowledge exchange and cultural exchange across countries. There's there's several countries that are involved in, in the Fulbright programme. It was initially set up by uh, Senator... Fulbright is the name. and in, in, in the US? In the US, yeah, sorry. And um, again, it's all about exchanging knowledge and culture to address real world problems. So I'm really excited to be part of that that programme. And do you have any idea yet? I know you're only a week in, but do you have any idea exactly what you're going to be doing in that period? Yeah, so the plan is I'll be going to um, the Centre for Advancing Correctional Excellence in George Mason University and linking in with um, Professor Faye Taxman's team there. And again, we are going to be looking at um, digital technology and how it can be used to support people. So I think 
the plan is to take the app over to the US, test it with some probation officers there, um, some people on probation, and see where it could fit the US context and where it would need to be adapted and how it could then potentially feed into other technologies that we can build with um, Faye, Professor Faye Taxman and her team. It's a big deal. It's great. Where is that university based in the US? Uh, George Mason University is based in Virginia, um, probably like a 40-minute drive to Washington, D.C. So great. Great location. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. I mean, obviously, like I said at the beginning, you're a, you're a sociology, social policy or criminology lecturer. Um does it surprise you, sort of ten years after starting on this kind of journey, just how involved you are with the digital technology element of it? You know, when I started my PhD, when I started the journey, it wasn't really at the forefront of something that I would, I know, I'd, I'd planned planned to go into. Obviously, I'd always been focused, and my research has revolved around looking at how do we embed evidence-based practices and um, advance our understanding and knowledge around that. But I think it was just identifying that that real gap. And again, COVID was the catalyst for that, but also what I'd found in the field and wanting to apply my research more, I think. My research is very theoretical, but it's also very much applied. So for me, it's all about, well, how do I use what I know to actually have impact in the real world? So again, that was kind of the driver to go into looking at how do we perhaps develop you know apps to address this problem and you know an app isn't the silver bullet you know this app alone isn't going to reduce reoffending, but it could be used as a tool or one aspect that can you know help to to make an impact and create a change i suppose it's an example as well of interdisciplinary work you know your like you said quite theoretical academic stuff has been integrated with people who are very good at designing tech so it is a it's a partnership isn't it yeah absolutely and i think partnership and collaboration is key to addressing any global issue or any issue at all you need to be you know speaking with collaborative with all different types of people you know whether it's academics people in industry people who you know who ex- who have lived experience of a particular issue all of those voices and perspectives are really important and equally as important as one another. If people are listening to you and thinking, this is interesting, this is cool, this is you know important stuff, particularly if they're young, uh, maybe thinking about university, what advice would you give them in terms of going into this line of work? I think be creative. It, it's not necessarily something that you think goes with social science of creativity, don't be afraid to think out of the box. Don't be afraid to challenge things. Um, and be ambitious and go and go for it if you're interested in it. I would I would say, particularly criminology, we've got a fantastic uh, department. So I'll do a little bit of a plug. Come to Swansea, come study with us. You'll learn a lot, you'll experience a lot, and you can really take those skills on then and, you know, create real world change and impact. Lots to think about, Gemma. Really interesting. Thank you for thank you for discussing it. If you want to find out more about Gemma's research, you can visit her staff profile page on Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to my guest, Dr. Gemma Morgan. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.